Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, so before we get into today's episode, I just want to tell you about a great opportunity. You see, we've had a massive interest lately in learning a second language, and I do a lot of my language training with my very good friend Ollie Richard. We've been friends for three or four years now, and he's been on my program, and I've been on his program, and he spoke at my conferences, and I've spoke at his conferences, and he really is a genius. His techniques for teaching languages are just out of this world. He actually makes it fun and enjoyable. He was one of the main drivers for me rekindling my interest in Spanish. And under his tutelage and his advice and using his programs, I went from really crummy Spanish to quite fluent in a really short amount of time. So if you are looking to learn a second language or maybe even a third language, what I want you to do is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language forward slash language, and it's going to redirect you to some of Ollie's best courses out there in the world. And there's some special promotions going on, some special opportunities for subscribers of my podcast. So I hope you take us up on this offer and go and check it out. That's expatmoneyshow.com forward slash language to get the best resources in the world for learning a second language. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show. And today's guest is a wealth manager and certified financial planner at GFM Asset Management and is based out of Hong Kong and Macau. He is one of the few Hong Kong-based specialists in U.S. tax-deferred savings and investments accounts, including IRAs, 401ks, 529s, and HSA accounts. He has been active in global equity, fixed income, and foreign exchange markets since 1998 and in working with wealth management since 2004. With extensive experience in ETFs, smart beta, ESG, and international investing, he prides himself as being one of the cleanest voices in world-class investing. Please welcome to the show, Tarek Dennison. Tarek, how are you? I'm doing great, Mikkel. How are you? Very well. Thank you so much for coming. So why don't you take a minute and kind of walk us through your backstory? How did you get working in international investing? How did you become an expat yourself? And I'm super curious to learn from you today. Well, thank you very much, Mikkel. Well, I often say the story started uh, when I was six years old and we first moved from the U.S. to Germany. And for the next 11 years, I grew up on U.S. Army bases in Germany. Uh, But really part of it where it started was going from, you know, when I was five or six years old, we used dollars. But then when you moved to Germany, 
I started getting an allowance in marks. And I noticed that how much the exchange rate between dollars and marks could change. I mean, right shortly after we moved there, the exchange rate went from about 3.2 marks to the dollar to 2.5 marks to the dollar. And for a kid of that age, you have to wonder, you know, how something like that could, you know, could change for two things which are otherwise so, so tangible. So that really started my interest in currencies. And then later on, when I learned that my savings could be saved in a bank and earned 8% interest, that, of course, was also something that I could get quite excited about. Much harder now to get my kids excited about investing in a savings account at, at half a percent interest. But at that time, even interest rates were somewhat exciting. Um, it was actually only much, much later that I bought my first stock. But I realized that in the world of investing, you know, with those numbers that move around in the Financial Times every morning, you're really getting a picture of how the world works. You know, when you look at, say, um, shares of McDonald's, you know, whether they go up, not say from day to day, but from year to year, you're looking at the profits of a business. Are, is that business selling more from year to year? Are they able to control their costs and pass more of their profits down to shareholders? Um, and that's really the reason why I wanted to make sure that my kids own individual stocks and start learning, okay, when you go and you see a restaurant serves Coke instead of Pepsi, you know, which one of you is getting a bigger dividend than the other? My older son owns Coke, my younger son owns Pepsi. Now, that's on the investment side. On the international side, as I mentioned, I grew up on, in, on U.S. Army bases in Germany, and my father always took full advantages, advantage of that. On many, many weekends, we would just go and take short weekend trips, driving around to different parts of Germany, driving to France, driving down to Italy. Um, I visited Berlin several times before the wall came down. After the wall came down, we started uh, being able to go to the east uh, a lot more, and I think I certainly got the feeling you know, well into my teenage years that I would never be able to live in the U.S. for very, very long because I had the need to cross borders. I had the need to see how different different parts of the world uh, were, you know, nearby rather than reading about them from the other side of the world. Now, after I'd worked in the U.S. for, for several years, so uh, 2004 was when I graduated with my master's in financial engineering. I went to Wall Street. You know, I spent several good years on Wall Street. And then when Lehman Brothers collapsed, um, you know, we got this kind of nice severance package and we we're like, okay, what do we want to do? At that time, my oldest son was a year and a half old. Um, you know, my wife could leave her job. Our lease was coming up. All the stars had aligned. And so I said, well, let's just go travel a little bit. So my wife, my eldest son and I, we got on a train in Turkey, traveled around Turkey, took a ferry up to Ukraine. And over the next 206 days, over a seven month period, we went through 23 countries almost all overland, you know, by train, by ferry, uh, you know, some, some buses and actually one uh, tuk-tuk uh, from the Cambodian border um, and ended up in Singapore at the end of seven months. And part of that along the way was a bit of a survey of, you know, where is it that we would like to live? What's kind of the lifestyle we'd like to have? I mean, to this day, that is still, I would say, kind of one of the high points where we felt alive, where we felt adventurous, and we felt we got to really explore and connect with people on the ground. You know, I realized that you know, even when I was in, on Wall Street, I was an emerging markets trader. I focused very much on Latin America and Russia and China and, you know, markets that were considered emerging markets. And I was excited about their growth stories. But then going and seeing them on the ground, crossing the border on my own two feet, seeing how people, um, I, seeing how I could interact with people, not just in the big cities, not just in Moscow and Beijing, but in, you know, really small um, cities you might not think of, like in Krasnoyarsk or Datong, um, 
I realized that the big cities in the world had more in common with each other than they often do with their own countrysides. So that really gave me an interest to say, well, if, if I could be based in a place like Hong Kong, um, you know, within a, a train ride, I could get access to all of mainland China, both the most, most advanced and the up and coming. If I get on a plane, I can go see Japan, which is, you know, demographically and technologically advanced, or I could go to Burma, which is on the complete opposite end of the, uh, the development spectrum. And along the way, I can taste many different languages, taste many different foods, see many different styles of architecture. Um, that's, that's, I think, really been quite the, the trajectory my life has taken and what's, you know, what's motivated me to get up in the morning and plan my next trip. You can imagine what it's been like for me this year, being confined to only 1,070 square kilometers here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, okay, so this is super interesting. Now, during these trips and going to these countries, have you found that it's made you a better investor by having boots on the ground, by seeing these things yourself? Or do you really just still rely on the balance sheets and the numbers and just more of the, the mathematical financial side of it? Or is it a combination of both? I'm super curious here. It has to be a combination of both. And uh, I mean, at least for me, how I think of it, it's still probably 80% numbers and then 20% uh, what I would call sanity check, okay. because what does that experience on on the ground give me? I mean, okay, so first of all, it gives me an idea of um, how people are different than me. If I modeled all of my investing based on my own consumption, my portfolio would be really, really lopsided. I mean, there'd be whole sectors that it didn't include. You know, I, I don't smoke, so I wouldn't include any tobacco. Um, you know, I actually don't even drive much. So my allocation to things like oil and autos would probably be very, very different, obviously living in a place like Hong Kong. But then obviously if you go out to different places and you see, okay, in different countries or different cities, how much do people still smoke or how much are they still using, um, you know, these vaping or, or e-cigarettes uh, of different kinds? What are their consumption behaviors like? Are Unilever's products packaged differently? Um, you know, let's say in smaller Chinese cities than they are in bigger Chinese cities, uh, you know, and are they still foreign brands or are people buying domestic? Um, there's certainly a lot of insights that I feel from, I feel I get from that on the ground perspective. But me as an investor, if you've ever read my investing style, you'll know I'm very much by the numbers. I'm very much $100 in the box. When do I get my $200 back out? Okay, interesting. And that is an interesting point as well about the smoking, because I think a lot of North Americans kind of think that smoking is on its way out. Actually, when you go overseas, it is alive and well. Like, like I mean, I lived in the Middle East for a long time. Um, they love to smoke. If, even if it's not uh, Philip Morris cigarettes, I mean, it's shisha or it's something else. You mentioned Turkey earlier. I mean, I think that's what we did every single night while we were there was just smoke. Um, same in China. My wife is from mainland China when we go there. I mean, people are smoking everywhere. But, I mean, if you just listen to the news in North America, you would never know that. So, so that, that is kind of an interesting side point. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Hong Kong itself. Because I, I notice in the background, your view, which is beautiful, is not really the traditional Hong Kong that I think most people would think of when they, when they hear the word Hong Kong. I, well, I probably wouldn't have said traditional. I would have said stereotypical. Stereotypical. Um, They're even you, better. You know, even uh, better. A, a hundred years ago, this is what most of Hong Kong used to look like. 
Um, but I'm not on Hong Kong Island, I'm in Lantau Island. So those who know Hong Kong, Lantau Island is about twice the size of Hong Kong Island. It's where the airport was relocated in 1997. And there's a big Buddha statue about uh, an 11 kilometer walk over that way from my house. Um, after living seven years on Hong Kong Island and in the cramped spaces that I think many people associate with being in the middle of buildings, middle of traffic, but also in the middle of a lot of conveniences, we decided to move out to Lantau Island so that I could wake up hearing birds chirping in the morning rather than hearing traffic in the morning. And now it still takes me over an hour to get to Central, um, which, you know, it's, it's a long commute, but to be fair, I wrote my first book on that ferry ride going, going going back and forth. I try to make use of that time. And the I would say the peace and relaxation I get from, again, waking up to birds and you know looking out of my window and seeing green treetops and Lantau Peak and being able to do a little bit of hiking right from my doorstep, that's certainly more than made up for the uh, commute times during the week. Well, and then if you have to do a commute, probably a ferry is probably one of the nicer ways to do it. Instead of actually being stuck behind the wheel and you're on a ferry, you can oh, yes, appreciate absolutely. the beautiful views. Well, I mean, we can discuss a number of the reasons why I left the U.S. I mean, one of the reasons why I especially didn't want to live in California anymore was that I didn't like driving to work as a commute. And to yeah. be fair, really, in most of the U.S., you know, kind of everywhere I visited, you know, when I arrived there, the first thing I do is rent a car. That's that's how it's needed to get around. Many U.S. cities don't have great public transportation. And, and Hong Kong does have excellent, uh, excellent public transportation. I mean, even out here in one of the most remote parts of Hong Kong, yes, we have a car, but we hardly ever use it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's actually just more convenient to take the regularly scheduled bus. And then once you get on the ferry, um, uh, you know, and again, someone else, someone else is dealing with it. And we talk about something like a large ship. If I've got, you know, a laptop, I can do my writing. I can, uh, um, you know, I can do do a lot more than I could if I had to pay my attention to not getting killed, <laughs> running into someone Absolutely. ahead of me. So, okay. So let's, let's, Dig in here because I'm super interested. I mean, we've not had anyone on here who's talked about, you know, different types of retirement accounts, especially for expats or people who are investing internationally, and then really how they're doing it in tax favorable manners. So, I mean, I've got like a list of questions, a list of things here I want to go through, but maybe you can just kind of give us like a 30,000, 40,000 foot overview, and then we can kind of like pick on some of the different programs that are out there, like the 401ks and IRAs, and maybe some of the less traditional ones that people might not already know about. Of course. I mean, I think as with many entrepreneurs, my journey really started with trying to solve one of my own problems. So when I first moved out here to Hong Kong, Hong, as you may know, is a low tax jurisdiction. And Americans who come here, um, Americans, are, we're subject to our to US income tax on our worldwide income wherever we live, whether we live in a high tax country or a low tax country. So we come here to Hong Kong where the personal income tax rate is a flat 15%. And yes, of course, we get a, a credit on that, but then we'd have to pay the difference back to the US you know, over above our exclusions. Uh, whereas we look at our Canadian colleagues, our British colleagues, our Aussie colleagues who've all come here, they're non-residents. Uh, you know, so an Aussie who moves here is an Australian non-resident. They don't have to pay tax back to Australia anymore. A Brit who moves here is a UK non-resident. They don't have to send tax back there. And American often kind of wonders, hey, what's, what's up with this? this? This doesn't make sense. Is there anything I can do about it? Now, the flip side of it is even though 
we are subject to tax on our worldwide income, what that also means is that we can keep contributing to U.S. onshore retirement plans with all of the benefits that those come with. So that's a first call I often make when I speak to an American who has moved over here, kind of in similar situations to when I first came out here. I say, well, okay, you're complaining about the amount of tax you send back to the U.S. Can we start going through some of the more obvious steps that you can do to reduce that income tax? Now, an IRA doesn't let you contribute that much. If you have earned income, which is subject to tax, you can contribute $60 up until age 50 and then $7,000, sorry, $6,000 under the age of 50. And if you're 50 or above, you can contribute $7,000 a year. That's not a heck of a lot to get people excited. But also, not very many companies or not very many even business owners out here have set up SEP IRA or 401k plans. And what, that do, what those do, um, a SEP IRA lets you contribute up to $57,000 in one year, a lot like an IRA, and it is the simplest form of company-sponsored pension plan. And you can do this if you own your own company or if your employer um, employs you and you're the only American there. The only requirement of a SEP IRA is that the same percentage of compensation needs to be given to all eligible employees. And for many companies out here, most of the employees wouldn't be eligible because they're not they're non-resident aliens. They're not U.S. taxpayers anyway. Um, a 401k plan is the next step above it. And that 401k plan provides you more flexibility and also higher contribution limits. And there are lots of things, again, you can write into a plan. Um, if you look in Section 401, subsection K of the U.S. tax code, you'll notice it simply says a U.S. trust set up for the benefit of, you know, set up for the retirement benefits of employees. It does not say it needs to be set up by a U.S. company. So as a result, we've become one of the leading companies out here who have helped, you know, those employed overseas. So let's say if, uh, you know, an American were here in Hong Kong running a business or even employed by a company who wants to set up a 401k plan for, for their employees, it certainly can be done. And there are a number of options and bells and whistles that can be considered there. Now, the next layer above that is when we really start getting to really high income employees. And I'm, again, quite surprised how many non-professionals ha have not heard of this, which is a defined benefit plan. So a defined benefit plan is something you or I may think of, oh, yeah, isn't that what my grandfather had at, uh, you know, back when you had lifetime employment sorts of things? Well, in the U.S., those are still a thing. And those are simply um, qualified retirement plans where you can put in much, much higher amounts because the contribution limit is not set to like a $57,000 a year. It's set based on what will produce you a certain amount of income in retirement for the rest of your life after you retire. So what I often say, the ideal candidate for a defined benefit plan is a professional athlete, someone who has a very high income for a few years and is going to retire young. Um, the fact is, there are a lot of American expats who meet that profile. You know, they're in their 30s or 40s, you know, in really, really peak earning years, you know, earning very, very high incomes, even after a 401k um, you know, $57,000 contribution, they would still be sending quite a bit of tax money back to the US. So being able to set up a defined contribution plan and being able to contribute, say, $200,000 in one year is an enormous tax savings. And then once that money is in the plan, it's growing tax-free until it's paid out as income in retirement. Um, now, once it's in there, you know, just like, let's say, a BlackRock or a Fidelity or any other world-class fund manager, even but probably better yet, say, a CalPERS, you know, take a large U.S. pension. What kinds of investments are they making? Well, they're investing around the world um, in the best investments they can find. 
And those are all sheltered from current year tax. They don't have to pay tax on that year's dividends. They can realize capital gains without paying tax on it because it's all under the uh, qualified retirement plan tax shelter. And so really in a way, the, the, the goal is to say, how can we help you make your own CalPERS? Interesting, interesting. Okay, so let, let's talk about who is the ideal person? I mean, you, you mentioned one person, one, one example we could say of a, mm -hmm. someone who makes a lot of money in a short amount of time. Who else would be an ideal candidate for this style of investing? Well, really, I'm, my, my focus is I work with cross-border working professionals. So, you know, generally working people who either own their businesses and they have regular income or they earn a salary and their goal is they want to save, first of all, for retirement, then for their kids' education, and then possibly for succession. Uh, so that's the goal. And then the thing that, that differentiates me is that I always have an international angle to my client base. So I'm dealing with an American who does not live in the United States, or I'm dealing with, let's say, uh, a Chinese who went and studied in the U.S. and then they came back, but then they have a 401k plan back in the U.S. So there's always a cross-border component um, to what I do. And really, at the end of the day, I, I'm a problem solver. You know, I've had my curiosity has really helped me because I've had to go and find solutions to all of these different scenarios, every different combination of this nationality, moving here, having a pension here, and so forth like that. But the goal is really the same. The goal is we want to make sure we accumulate enough money so that we can have a comfortable retirement, you know, and possibly even, even leave a legacy, you know, do dreamy things that many people wouldn't have thought of. And if you think about for someone who's only in their 30s or 40s, there's plenty of time. I mean, small differences of increasing your rate of return on investment by one or 2% per year can have an enormous impact on the withdrawals you can make when you're 70. Um, Definitely. And, you know, and one of the reasons I even focus on tax, you know, I don't want to let the tax tail wag the investment dog. But if taxes are a certain cost that you can reduce and make sure you leave more money in your pocket, you know, I often say that. One of the charts I often do in my presentations of IRAs is I, I actually say, well, with a traditional IRA or even with a 401k plan, you may actually end up paying more tax. Um, but the only reason we do that is because you end up with a lot more money in your pocket at the end. So, okay, break that down for me, because, I mean, that's counterintuitive straight off the bat. Sure. Uh, well, if you like, I can, I, can, I can pull up a chart for you on that. But let's say, for example, you can save $6,000 a year in an IRA account versus saving $6,000 a year in a regular taxable account. So if you save $6,000 a year in a regular taxable account, okay, $6,000, $12,000, and so forth, but then every year, any dividends, any interest, any capital gains, you realize and you pay tax on. You know, so let's say, for example, you're $6,000 in one year you earn, 10, let's say, a 10% return. And let's say you realized all those gains in one year. And let's say you have to pay a 25% tax on that. Well, instead of growing it to 6,600, you've only grown it to 6,450. You've had to pay the 150 in tax. Now, obviously, that scales up after 10 years when you're talking about 60,000, 100,000. 100,000 grows to 110,000. You pay 2,500 from that. You're paying taxes every year as you go along. And as you pay those taxes year after year, your money doesn't grow as quickly. And so, you know, along the way at the end, you know, okay, yes, you may have accumulated a million dollars, $2 million, and you've paid taxes all along the way. But on the other hand, let's say you have $6,000 and you earn the 10% interest. Well, 10% total return, I would say it's interest rates are not 10% now, but you can make that in stocks. Um, that 10% stays in the account. 
you don't pay any tax there. And then that keeps compounding. And whenever you do compounding at higher rates, that money grows much, much faster and you end up with multiples more at the end. Now, when you withdraw it, you still have to pay tax on your withdrawals. So if let's say, for example, the difference is you would have grown your account to 2 million in the taxable way, but it would have grown to 4 million in a tax deferred account, but then you need to pay a million dollars in tax. Well, you wouldn't have paid a million dollar tax in the other way, but after a million dollars tax, you still have $3 million versus only $2 million. And so what I sometimes say is, you know, if you do this, you know, you're actually benefiting the government as well. The government is still a partner in your long-term investment. But what I care about is, do you end up with more at the end of the day? You know, I, I don't meet too many people who say, you know what, I really don't want more money. I just want to make sure the government gets less. You know, I do meet people like that. It's rare, but uh, I'll keep my mouth shut on that one. I'll I'll keep my mouth shut on that. No, I I hear what you're saying. Okay, that so that makes sense. That makes sense because when the first thing I thought of when you said, "Oh, you're going to end up paying more tax, but you're it's going to be beneficial," I mean, that is a little bit bizarre when you think about it. But I mean, I I understand in your example because you've made a lot more money. The point is, if you end up with more, you know, and that's that's the conversation I often end up with is to me, tax is a means to means to an end. You know, we're looking at ways on doing smart tax planning because our goal is to end up with more. And, and that's really the only two variables we look at. Even if it ends up that the government ends up, you know, collecting more as well, well, that was probably a good partnership if you want to look at it that way. Okay, so we'll move on from the government being a good partnership. As a libertarian, that's probably not quite how I feel. But I am interested in some of the other, like, tax-favorable ways that people can invest and try to keep more of their money. Um, okay, so, so, so that's good. So that's kind of like an overview as well as kind of who the ideal person is to be using some of these uh, programs. Now, do you have a special program that you like better than other ones? Are they all created equal? Do they all work the same for everybody? What's your opinion on that? Okay, we're going to take like a quick 10 second break. So what I want everyone to do right now is if you are a fan of this show, I want you to share it with one friend. That's it. That's all I need you to do. I need you to pause the episode right now. Go out there, go on Facebook, go on Twitter, go on your email, and I want you to share this episode or maybe your favorite episode with a really good friend of yours. Because it's no secret that the world we're going through some pretty tough times right now. And what I want to do is try to be a voice of solution, a voice of reason that is out there to be able to help people. And I honestly believe that moving overseas and having a bit of adventure and having a bit of passion back in your life and moving to a safe, peaceful country is a real opportunity for people. So please, 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 if you guys can just do one thing for me today, I want you to share this episode or your favorite episode with a friend right now. I really appreciate it. We actually grow the more the episodes are shared. We need to get these things out here because what I think is that we're all building a really strong community together. So hopefully you will take this, you'll share it with your friends, and get a lot of value from it. Thank you so much. Okay, let's jump back into the interview. Not at all. I mean, and to some extent, that's why human advisors still have a job. I mean, part of my goal over the next 10, 15 years is seeing how much of my work I can automate 
you know, how much of my work I can encapsulate in, you know, in an AI, in a robot, in something that can better help you walk through a flowchart saying, oh, okay, well, if you're a 35-year-old American living in Hong Kong, making X amount, you know, this is the best solution for you. Um, a lot of the best solution can still be done by flowchart, but that is a big complicated flowchart with lots and lots of arrows and lots and lots of conditionals. So the best solution for someone depends on all sorts of things, such as the person's age, whether, whether or not they're married, if they're married, are they married to another American? Are they married to a foreigner? What is their income? Are they planning to move back to the US? Are they planning to stay overseas? All of those are variables that we consider when we try and decide, okay, should we set up a 401k plan for you? Should we set up a defined benefit plan for you? Should we just focus on helping you maximize IRA contributions in years that we can? Should we make sure that you have a health plan, which is HSA eligible so that you can contribute to an HSA? If you have kids that you're saving for university, is a 529 plan the best way to save for university? Or if your spouse is non-American, um, you know, I've had non-Americans ask me about 529 plans living in Hong Kong. And I say, well, you don't need one. I mean, the only reason you need a 520, an American needs a 529 plan is so we can invest for university and we can invest for a kid's college education and we don't have to pay tax on those gains. If, you're, if your spouse is a Hong Kong resident, non-American, you know, that spouse is not going to pay U.S. tax anyway. Uh -huh. So the least romantic thing I've ever called my wife is my $157,000 a year Roth IRA. <laughs> she does not like that. She does not like that title. It's just not romantic. <laughs> but right. it, but in, in, a, in a way, it, it acts a lot like one because that's the other thing is that you can give a foreign spouse uh, a certain amount of money every year. I believe this year it's $157,000, uh, and that's your annual gift exclusion. And above that, there's gift taxes, or you know, at least it eats into your annual gift tax allowance. Um, but that's one of the planning decisions to make when you say, well, which investments are best made in the American's name and which investments are best made in the spouse's name. Now, on the flip side, that's the other thing on the flip side I keep missing. I say, oh, well, doesn't that mean that all investments should be in the non-American spouse's name? And the answer is no. Any U.S. investments are best held in the American's name because a Hong Kong resident investing, let's say, in U.S. shares has a 30% withholding tax on any dividends coming from the U.S. There's no tax treaty between the US and Hong Kong, uh, whereas the American will still file it you know, on their return. And that may, that may get taxed at zero. It may get taxed at a much lower qualified rate. But it's certainly better than just having 30% off the top with, uh, with no deductions considered. Same exact thing with, say, investments in US real estate. Many foreigners out here, many Chinese, many Thais, many Singaporeans love buying US real estate. Uh, but there are so many tax traps involved with buying U.S. real estate as a non-U.S. person. First of all, there is a U.S. estate tax on any U.S. situs assets a foreigner holds above $60,000 when they pass away with it. So there are structuring decisions that we often, often look at. Uh, but then again, you also have possible withholding taxes, the biggest of which is FERPTA. You know, if a foreigner sells a property to an American, that American needs to hold a certain amount of the purchase price um, until that, uh, that foreigner files a tax return. Um, these are things that you may not consider when you purchase the property, but they're certainly something you're going to notice when you sell, with the, sell the property or die with the property. And that's why I think having a plan is one of the most important things. You know, that way you're, you don't get into any of these traps and you, you're well set up when you get into it. So what I hear you saying is that really everything is boutique. Everything is custom made because I've sat down with financial planners before and I swear to God, they've given me the exact same pitch that they've given every single other person and they've never listened to a word that I've said. And I mean, 
after they hear about what I'm doing and my structures and my businesses and my investments, they're like, wow, you really know a lot about this. And I'm like, well, yes, I do this for a living as well. And I'll be honest with you, most financial planners or wealth managers, I've decided not to work with because I just found that everything was so cookie cutter. And I really don't like that at all. But in our time today and in our previous conversations, um, I don't think that is the case with you. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why I am excited for you to be on the show and kind of share some of your knowledge. Have you seen that in your industry as well? Or, or what is your opinion on that? Well, um, I have to admit, as a, as a business owner, it's one of the things I wonder if I'm driving myself a little bit too crazy with. I mean, the fact is, I like solving problems. I do get fascinated by situations that are outside of the cookie cutter. And if you think, for example, of the, especially the large institutions, the large planners, the reason they've been able to scale is they've been able to find something very, very standard that even a junior person fresh out of school they can, you know, they can train them how to sell it. They can train them how to, how to set it up. It doesn't require a lot of critical thinking or a lot of, you know, out of the box. What about this scenario? What about this scenario? Um, and to be fair, it's, it's not as though I would say everything is boutique. Everything is custom. But the idea is I've described that flow chart. When I describe the flow chart of kind of all those different questions here, 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 and there, if I were to draw it all out for all the different scenarios I've seen, it would be a big and elaborate flow chart. So that's not to say that two people with really, really very similar circumstances wouldn't get a similar portfolio or, or a similar result. Um, that, in a way, is, is part of the goal. Because if they didn't, if you had two identical twins with absolutely identical scenarios, and somehow I met one one week, I met one the other, and I gave them different recommendations, you'd probably wonder why. You know, you'd probably wonder, is, is there a degree of randomness or, you know, and the point is, is I still do have a system, but that system has allowed me to take into account important personal differences. One of my favorite is taking into account just personal tastes, religious beliefs, ethical considerations, which I know many other advisors I've spoken to in Hong Kong don't have the capacity to, or it's, or it's not within their remit. Um, you know, so if, let's say, for example, if I have a client who's a devout Catholic, I've looked at several Catholic values funds. I understand how they work, and I understand how to put together a, a portfolio that is compatible with that. Um, you know, it, it, I, I, it doesn't make me a Roman Catholic bishop by you know by any stretch of the words. I don't I don't know, but the point is at least I have a methodology for how to at least find out an answer and at least say, okay, here's what I found. Here's how I can put together a solution which I think works with what's important to you. Let's discuss that. And. I think that interest in it, the fact that I like that process, the fact that I'm really interested in finding, you know, a solution which the client is happy with, that's the optimism which I think many clients are attracted to. That's, that's why I feel those who choose to work with me choose to work with me. Okay, cool. So let's do some examples because I think that examples at this point are going to be like really, really beneficial because I mean, you've described a whole bunch of things, but I think that a lot of people are going to think like, well, is this for me or how does this work? Or, you know, this is maybe for someone else. So let, let's, let's come up with a couple of examples together and then kind of walk through them step by step. So let's make something up. Um, let's say a young couple, um, She's American and he's German or something like that. And they meet and get married in Dubai. So it's a tax-free country. And, you know, they're making good money, you know, maybe three, dollars $400,000 as a couple. You know, mid-30s, early 40s, somewhere age, you know, pretty typical expat kind of uh, romance. If you had someone like this, a couple like this, walk into your office, what would you 
what would you try to do with them or help them or want them to understand? Oh, certainly. Well, that's actually a very, very typical situation that I often say is right around my sweet spot. I mean, the first thing in those situations is usually I'm there to listen first. I'm there for them to tell me what is it that they're looking for, what's important to them. Um, And a lot of times it's a motivation of, okay, you know, yep, we're here. We just got married, trying to have, you know, probably planning to have a baby in the next year or two, really wanting to save for the future, you know? And so I really kind of take a note of what's important to them. What are their goals? What is their lifestyle? Um, The nice thing about having a very high income in a low tax country is you're usually able to have a very, very high savings rate. And one of the things that I often emphasize is the importance of really maximizing that high savings rate, you know, and building up as much of a, uh, you know, a wealth, um, a wealth account as you can, uh, you know, early on. Because if you're fit, you're in your early fifties and you already have a few million dollars or even a million dollars, you're you're well on your way. You're well ahead to what most people, you know, back home just keeping ta- track of the high taxes and, and so on would, uh, you know, would be able to keep up with. Now, as you say, it's a couple, so you have a German and an American, and there, so there's going to be a bit of a ta- difference in tax treatment between the two. I often do open separate accounts when it's an American and a non-American, because when it's a joint account, obviously you have some mix-ups when it has to do with the reporting and the who owns what. It's just much cleaner to have the U.S. account and the non-U.S. account, and for the, for the U.S. spouse, we'd often look first as like, okay, well, you know, if tax savings is a priority, um, you know, should we look at, uh, well, either first of all, just a plain old IRA contribution, or do you want to look at, let's say, a SEP IRA, a 401k? Um, and then obviously when children are involved, we often look at 529 plans because many couples at that age are very, they really want to make sure they've saved enough to send their kids to Harvard, <laughs> you know, to a really, really good college. And the nice thing about 529 plans is, is I don't usually get people worried, oh, are we putting way too much in the 529 plan? Would, would it be possible that the kids, you know, I don't usually get that concern. I actually have seen a case this year when, when that did happen, where someone saved way too much in the 529 plan. After all their kids had gone through university, there was still about $100,000 left in it. It's not the end of the world. Um, you know, so most people would love to have that problem. Um, but basically, it's just running down, you know, step by step. Well, you know, um, the first the first thing, even before we get in any complex structures, is to just have a plan to save. Say, okay, fine, making uh, $300,000 a year, what have you. If you can save $100,000 of that, you know, in one form or another, that, that goes a long way. Um, now, if the, you know, German spouse is spending all of that, uh, you know, saving all of that, you know, that's obviously one way you can put that in an investment account. But if there, any investments are going to be made in the U.S., there's a reason that, you know, she should probably be putting it in her U.S. accounts, preferably in her ta- in her tax deferred accounts, because they're not going to be facing the 15 percent withholding, even going through the Irish or the Luxembourg funds that a, um, you know, that a German resident in UAE, UAE is, is most likely to be buying. Um, so that's just on the plain old tax and saving side. But everything that we work with runs on a timeline. So one of the things I start with, I have it on a spreadsheet. I'm trying to get it in non-spreadsheet form for those who are a little bit Excel-phobic. Um, but right now, I have it in a spreadsheet. And what I do is I say, okay, this is where you are now. This is your year. This is your age. This is how much you've saved. Let's just go ahead and project how much you're putting in every year. You know, make some assumptions on rate of return. You know, what, what will that grow to? You know, and what kind of income, what kind of lifestyle will, will that generate for you? And then let's see how changing one of those assumptions a little bit. If you save $500 a month more, what will that do for you? If you invest a little bit more aggressively and there's a big market crash, what will that do for you? 
Um, so more than anything, I think what's exciting about financial planning is just the step-by-step of walking through the future, you know, walking through what your future is likely to look like and what, what is likely to change that future. You know, uh, ch- changes in tax rates. Let's say an accident. Why do so many financial planners need to focus on insurance? You know, because you know, there's the what now, what then, you know, so the what now is kind of your daily budgeting, your what then are your goals, your retirement, and then there's also the what if. The what if is what if bad things happen, you know, this couple is doing really, really great, but you know, what if the guy gets terribly disabled three years from now, you know, and they need to go back, well, what are you going to do about that? Usually that's one of the main reasons you have insurance, you know, insurance is what gives you, gives you money if bad things happen so that at least it's not that big of a financial loss. Um, one of the worst things I find of many expat financial advisors, and again, not to not to batter any that you, you may have spoken with. No, no, many batter of them, them all. That's good. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't pull punches on this show. I mean, we try to give people an honest understanding of what's going on out there. But, but I think part, probably partly because I'm American and I know how Americans have treated this, I very much believe that insurance is only for the what-if component. It's to really protect you for the if bad things happen. So mm-hmm. you buy life insurance because if you die, your widow gets a lot of money. You know, you buy disability insurance because if you break your hands and you can't work, it replaces your income. You buy health insurance so that if you have a big medical bill, you know, it pays the, pays the big medical bill. I have a very, very straight, and that's, again, in that timeline, in the what if. So it's say, well, what if this happens here? That insurance policy is there to cover that. So you can probably tell I do not believe in insurance policies that have cash value or in insurance policies that are used for any type of savings or investment, even if there's supposedly some tax benefit to it. Because I usually find insurance companies are really good at just managing risk, you know, at just collecting premiums for a bunch of people and then paying all that out to the one unfortunate person who died or crashed their car, uh, you know, and, and, that's, and those are the unfortunate things that we have to plan with. I mean, this year has been a reminder of how many unexpected things can really derail, you know, even the best laid plans. And you always, it's always worth remembering, life is what happens when you're making other plans. Um, you know, so that's, that's the important thing on that side. So that was the other thing this year, even things like having to do with wills and estate planning, you know, it's, re- it's not always that easy. Not very many 30 or 40 year olds come to me asking me about, you know, should they update their will? But that's, that's something to just make sure that you've got up to date because if the unexpected happens, you want to make sure you're ready for it. Okay, I want to flush these, these fictitious example people out a little bit. So, okay, so we've got like, I don't know, Amanda, our American 35-year-old uh, expat who's living in Dubai, and, and she meets uh, Helmut, who's like German, and he's 41, and, you know, they're thinking, okay, we want to have kids now. You know, we want to start planning for family. And I don't know, let's, let's make this really interesting. Let's say that they have like twins or they have, you know, three kids in quick succession, you know, multiple children, you know, and they're out there in the Middle East. Let's talk about from the education side, because I mean, you, you quickly jumped on one of the plans that are out there. Maybe flush that out a little bit more for me. And then maybe some other ideas from the family planning side. Well, um, so as mentioned, really what I start off whenever I speak, speak with a couple or really when I speak with any client is just really finding out what their goals are and plotting it out on a timeline. I mean, you think of any dream, any goal that you've had, it's far more likely to happen when you actually set a date. And the nice thing about goals having to do with, with children's education is that once your child is born, you know right away when that child is going to turn 18. 
You know, there's no mystery. There's no real uncertainty to it. You know, there, there is uncertainty about whether your child will be a prodigy and want to go to university at 14 versus whether your child decides not to go to university at all. I mean, there's all those things, but you know for sure when your child is going to turn 18. So the nice thing is, is that on that timeline, on that timeline plan, we can write down a date. We can even write down in a rough dollar amount. We can kind of say, well, this is we need to go from here to here. And when you talk about children's education for expats, many expats I find in places like Hong Kong will often send their, their children to international schools. And so current year education is a current year expense. And so that's in the what now category, just the day-to-day -day budgeting, saying, okay, well, this is our income and these are our current expenses. You know, we have, you know, rent or a mortgage payment. We have, you know, kids going to school and so on. The important thing is we say, well, after all of those current expenses, what are you able to save? And then of what you're able to save, what are we earmarking those things for? I often say it's an important priority. It's, it's often better to focus on making sure you save for retirement first. Uh, and only after you've really taken care of retirement, then you go ahead and save for, for kids, college, university education. The reason is, is that if you get to that day, you get to your child's 18th birthday and, you know, you have a tuition bill and then you're also approaching re retirement. Well, yes, maybe you can work a little bit longer to retirement, but then maybe if you can't, there's no such thing as a retirement loan. You know, the fact is when 18 year olds get to university, they have many options for how they pay for school. They can go to a less expensive school. You can make it their full-time job the year before to write to every nonprofit foundation and get every scholarship, every thousand dollar, you know, bit here and there they can get their hands on. They can work through school. They can take out student loans. Those are all options for education, which do not exist for retirement. And retirement also, of course, has to last you a lot longer. Um, so, there are really different risks and different things that you need to prepare for, but that's where on the timeline, we, you know, we have the timeline there. And then on the goals, we have that priority list of make sure you've saved for retirement, then university education. And of course, along the way, make sure there's enough insurance there. Now that next detail there, the next detail is once you said, okay, we're going to save X amount per month, you know, how do we save it? And what accounts do we put it in? You know, does Helmut put it all in his name? And of course, Amanda can give him the you know, annual uh, gift tax exclusion to get it all in his name. There are cases where that might make sense, but and Amanda as an American could also have a US retirement plan, which is entirely US tax sheltered and will have lots of other benefits as well. Um, so part of that will also depend on where they plan to retire. Let's say if they pl are planning to go retire in Germany versus if they're planning to go retire in the US, there are gonna be some different things that they're, that they're going to need to consider. Um, so, you know, as much as I would try and, uh, and, and capture this in a, uh, in a short show in a short sample here, I'm, I'm at least hoping the parts of the, uh, the parts of the flow chart that we've been able to highlight are at least enough to tell you a little bit about the process of what's involved. Okay. Excellent. So let's, let's, let's run through one more example, but let's make these, this couple a little bit different. So let's, yes. let's say that this is, um, a little bit further along. Um, these are also expats. They're also living overseas, but it's, uh, I don't know, what's a, what's a good name? Um, Betty and, Betty and Tom. I don't know. <laughs> Betty and Tom sounds like a good American couple and they're like 52. So they're a lot closer to retirement than our first couple. And they're both Americans. And uh, where should this couple be living? Let's, let's put them in a country that has taxes in it, opposed to the, the low tax jurisdictions. So let's say they were in... Well, I, so I, actually, to be fair, it's easier for me to focus on the low tax jurisdictions because I live in one. And most of the people, okay. I, I mean, the, the, the closest high tax jurisdiction we deal with most often is mainland China. Um, okay. But, let's uh, do mainland China because that's 
that that should be interesting as an example. So Betty and Tom are early, early 50s, and uh, they're executives, and they're living in mainland China, and um, earning, I don't know, what, what's a good amount? Do you want to keep it similar amounts or crank it up a little bit for our example? I think similar amounts are fine. I mean, $200,000, $300,000 a year is, is pretty typical for a good executive um, you know, living and working in mainland China. Uh, of course, it depends whether you're talking about before or after tax. One of the differences is, of course, mainland China's personal tax rates are much, much higher. So mm -hmm. usually there, there isn't quite as much of a concern about the, the amount of money that you're spending back to the U.S. because you already have fairly enormous mm -hmm. tax credits um, you know, and other things that you'd be planning that way. And the same thing is also China, mainland China has a fairly favorable tax treaty with the U.S. Uh, so in this case, you're talking about a both American couple, but you know there's the 10% withholding rate between between China and the U.S. Uh, on on their treaty. So um, let's say that he's the executive and mm -hmm. she's she's not working at all. She's stay at home, and he's doing a, a cool 300,000 uh, before any taxes, before any deductions, and he sits down with you. What would be some of the things that you would want to discuss with him? Well, does he own his company, or is he is he an employee of a larger company? No, no, he's an employee. He, he's he's a, an exec who's coming in to troubleshoot some problems with some factories over in China. I'm just getting really creative now. This is cool. I like this. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, like hypothetical. Although the fact is, there are billions of re of real people, so we can uh, we we can try our best with the hypotheticals here. So, okay. So he's he's an employee working for a factory. In my experience, very few employers want to bother setting up a SEP IRA or 401k plan for a US, U.S. employee. I've had one in mainland China who really wanted to get one you know, star U.S. talent over. And the only way they were able to get him over was to set up a 401k plan for him. So it, it has happened, but that would be just one thing to ask. And that really is a question of what kind of pull does he have with his HR department or whoever is the entity that's hired him. Um, do they want to bother setting up a, a 401k plan or even, let's say, a defined benefit plan for him? Because one thing you also say about a couple that age, uh, it depends whether their kids have already left, if they already have, let's say, high expenses. If they're saving a lot, and I find this, I would say, more with singles than with married couples. They say, well, I'm making $300,000 a year, but I'm able to save 200000 of that. You know, they're, they're able to save a lot because they don't, they don't live very high, you know, and they want to say, well, how can I save as much of that as possible on a uh, tax-sheltered basis? If that company can set up a defined benefit plan, that would by far be the way to put away the most money on a tax-sheltered basis. Um, now, again, of course, you've got some mechanical issues of how exactly does that company pay him. Sometimes companies pay on, on a split basis, where they'll pay some within mainland China, you know, some in a U.S. account. Um, you know, we'll obviously need to look at the mechanics of that, but that's at least one way of solving the U.S. side of it. A 401k plan is a really a simpler and more standardized version of a defined benefit plan with a lower limit. And if all he needs to contribute um, is, you know, in the, in the mid-60s, again, I forget the numbers off the top of my head. I've got a very poor memory. That's why I write them down. It's like 57,000 plus 6,000 for someone over the age of 50. That would be the amount he'd be able to put in a 401k plan. Uh, a SEP IRA would be just 57,000. Again, a SEP IRA is even simpler than a 401k plan. But all of those require something from the employer. And so if not, if for whatever reason that's not an option, um, some of the other things we look at is we look at just making regular IRA contributions. Well, um, you know, if he's making 
that, that amount, and he's in a high-tax jurisdiction. So the difference in a low-tax jurisdiction and a high-tax jurisdiction, an American living in Hong Kong is likely to take the foreign earned income exclusion uh, because it's likely to shelter a lot more than just writing off the 15% uh, Hong Kong tax that's paid. Whereas if you're paying 45% to mainland China, you're going to take the foreign tax credit. And what that's going to mean is that all that earned income is going to be earned income for purposes of an IRA. And so he can set up a IRA, an IRA and a spousal IRA, which would allow putting away 14000 per year, which again, not a heck of a lot of money. That's, you know, you're talking about 5% of, of income. Um, you know, year after year, certainly if we're talking about for the next seven years, that's an extra hundred grand in a tax sheltered account. Nothing really to sneeze at, but that's what you can put at in IRAs between the, between, um, the employee and, and the spouse. Um, now, in addition to that, there's also the question about uh, could he put aside an HSA? An HSA requires a high deductible health plan. Problem again, many employees are covered by fairly nice health plans, which, don't, which aren't HSA eligible, especially out here. Most employers will wonder, well, why the heck would you want this? So ma many employer health plans are the idea is, okay, they're going to take care of all your doctor visits and so on like that. But high deductible health plan is based on the idea that you're going to pay cash for most of the day-to-day -day medical expenses. And your health plan is only going to really kick in if you have a you know a big ticket hospitalization, um, you know that's in the thousands of dollars, which again makes perfect sense because after all, what is insurance? Insurance isn't there to pay your day to day bills. Insurance is really to protect you against those big unexpected, you know, oh gosh, suddenly I have a cancer diagnosis and I need you know to pay tens of thousands of dollars on different sorts of screenings and, and treatments. That's why you have health insurance. So a high deductible health plan. Um, you know, which some companies offer, some don't, uh, would be required in order for you to contribute to an HSA. And that'll let it, let it put aside another 7,000, again, tax-free, completely tax-sheltered that way. Um, so um, there are different ways of looking at it, depending really, again, whether the goal is tax savings or the goal is really to just save as much as possible. So I had one employee in mainland China who was in his 50s, uh, made a fairly high income, and really his goal was he was just going to save $100,000 a year, just regular accounts. You know, he considered this really his home stretch, his home push into retirement. You know, and to be fair, it, if the goal is, if any of these other structures, if any of these other things like this IRA, this limit, complicates it for you and makes it harder for you to do it, it may not be worth it. The most important retirement plan or the most successful one is the one that you will actually do, is the one you will actually follow up with. You know, so don't make it so complicated you won't actually do it or that you'll get paralyzed and not make a decision. Um, so even though I can very Analyst quickly- Analysis how do you say it? Oh no, now I'm- Analysis paralysis. There don't we go. Don't let Thank it happen you to you. Derek for the saved. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I think Tom and Betty will be pretty happy with that. And I mean, I don't really have any follow-ups because you- gave us a very comprehensive and I'm super grateful for, you know, laying this all out for us. So I know that I said last time we, that would be our last example, but you know what? I think it would be interesting to do one final example, but let's do it totally different than the others, because I guess the first couple was kind of that 30 to 40 year old, you know, that's kind of my age group. Um, and then we did Betty and Tom who are closer to retirement. Okay. So I want to do one final example, but let's make this one totally different. Okay. So Let's pretend he's like 22 years old. It's just a young guy, and his name's Ralph. Ralph is 22. He's American. He wants to move overseas. He hasn't yet done it, 
but I mean, he's just finished college. He's making all these applications and he's going to be making some good money here. Like he's, he's, he's a go-getter. I mean, and somehow he gets a meeting with you. You guys talk on Zoom and he wants to plan things out for the future. I mean, he's got the whole world in front of him, Tarek. What do you think uh, are some things he should know and understand? So I absolutely love that category. And I would say that's kind of another area where I really wanted to make sure we devote a good amount of time to our practice, because that's what I call our pre-high net worth category. As you probably know, there are many investment advisors, many wealth managers who say they just work with high net worth or ultra high net worth. I really like to say we focus on uh, pre-high net worth. Um, because there you have someone who, again, might be just out of school, might be just starting, probably not making that much of a salary. But even if, even if he's not able to make the full $6,000 IRA contribution, uh, although, again, if you're talking about someone from a good school, you know, good you know, professional posting in Hong Kong or Singapore, probably be good enough to at least make that $6,000 annual contribution. Those will really add up. Those will really compound over that working career, you know, until Ralph is 72. Because you've got to figure is that, you know, from where he is now to until age 72, that's more, almost three times as long as he's been alive. And the amount of wealth that you can compound over a 50-year period, much of that really comes from that first 10 years. One of the examples that I think you've often seen from a math point of view is to say, imagine you had Ralph at 22, and imagine you had someone else, let's just say Raul, at the age of 32. Or even let's say you both start them at 22. So for the first 10 years, Ralph saves for 10 years and then stops and never saves again. And then Raul decides that, you know, budget's too tight, can't save at 22, so waits 10 years. And then from age 32, saves every year from age 32 to age 62. Um, so Ralph saved for 10 years. Raul then saved for the next 30 years. In most cases, again, depending on your assumptions, Ralph ends up with more money because those earlier savings had more time to compound, more time to build than the money that was invested later. So the really important thing is time is on your side. Take advantage of it. And by all means, take the time to learn what is the financial personality. You, you know, What do you want your financial life to look at when you're 32, 42, 52, uh, and so on like that? I mean, I certainly try to get you know, kids and even students at a younger age to start thinking about that. 22, though, is still really, really early on. And in fact, I would say even the couple in their, you know, the 35 and 41 is still relatively young in terms of building what is ultimately your financial personality. Um, the other thing I would say is quite nice about someone who's 22. You may hear a lot of financial advice driven to helping people get out of debt. The nice thing is when you're talking to a 22-year-old, you can prevent them from getting in debt in the first place. <laughs> so different, different angles on, on that. Unless we're talking about that student loan debt that we mentioned before. Well, student loan debt is, is a certain type of debt. And you know, yes, I have to admit there, there are different versions of that. One of the reasons, of course, parents want to save for their kids' university is so that their kids don't have student loan debt. And actually, I would say a good chunk of the time, not even half the time, but some of the times that I actually get to speak with 22-year-olds is that they are children of my older clients. And my older clients were inspired by, okay, well, you know, we want you to get some perspective on how to think about your financial future. And, you know, we'd like you to have this conversation. And, and that's something that I'm, I'm very keen to inspire because what I really want to do is I want to make sure I've had a long-term impact on my client's future. I want them to look back 20 years and they say, and say, well, because they worked with me, because of some 
you know, important advice, important insights, important ideas that they got at the right age, it made a huge impact on whether they were able to finance their dreams. That's really, I think, what makes financial planning exciting. Amazing. I love it. Derek, fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about what you do, where can we send them? Certainly. Thank you, Mikkel. So my name is Tarek Dennison. That's T-A-R-I-Q, last name Dennison, D-E-N-N-I-S-O-N. If you Google that, I'm the only Tarek Dennison in the world. I would ask if you could visit my website at gfmasset.com. That's good for me, A-S-S-E-T, gfmasset.com. But you can search for my YouTube videos. You could find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm probably one of the most uh, accessible um, advisors out there. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time, Tarek, and we'll talk soon, okay? Thanks, Mikkel. I have a very big announcement. After a ton of requests for a place for expat and expat hopefuls to network and get to know each other, I decided to start a new Facebook group. It's called the Expat Money Forum, and it's 100% free to join. We literally just started the group, so you can really network and get to know the individuals there. We will be keeping a very close eye on this group, and I already have three awesome moderators volunteer to help me out. So to make it easy on you, I set up a really simple redirect link. All you have to do to join this group right now is go to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum. We already have a bunch of previous guests from my show in the group, so you can ask your questions directly to the professionals or get help from the people who are on the ground in the country you are interested in being an expat in. So I hope that you will join us in our new Facebook group by going to expatmoneyshow.com forward slash forum, and I will see you there. Thank you so much for listening to today's interview. Talk soon. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region.
But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.